Listener's warning. There'll be some topics covered in today's episode that are not very appropriate for listeners under the age of 13. Some of these topics will include crimes against humanity that will explore medieval torture devices, corrupt trials, and archaic executions that involved men, women, and sadly children. History has a way of showing future generations why it is important not to follow those in presumed authority blindly. This episode is one that reveals some of the darkest sides of humanity and organized religion. Thank you for remaining open-minded. By the year 1627, the European witch trials had come to their peak when the Prince Bishop of Bamberg initiated the construction of the Malfitz House, the largest and most well-known prison in Germany to house those accused of witchcraft. This building became the most brutal witch prison to be erected during the ongoing witch frenzies that spread across Europe between the 14th and 17th centuries. There would be tales of false accusations leading to the most horrific torture and public deaths recorded in those times outside of war. The most chilling part about this tale from the past is that the Bamberg Witch Commission was the most ruthless and almost no one was safe from being accused of being in a league with the devil. By the time of the third wave of witch trials came to an abrupt end in the town of Bamberg, Germany, at least 900 of the town's men, women, and children were accused of black magic, tortured, and burned at the stake. In part two of my two-part exploration of the Bamberg witch trials, I will cover what went down in the torture chamber and the real reason behind the witch hunts and what Bamberg, Germany looks like today. Welcome to the dark side of light work. I'm Wynne Thornley. In life, I'm a professionally practicing esoteric teacher and channel to the ethers, specializing in demystifying the dark arts and the paranormal. I'm also a supernatural nerd and do a lot of personal research into things that go bump in the night. My fascination with the unknown began when I was a kid due to having my own misunderstood psychic experiences. I believe my lifelong fascination with the strange and unusual has prepared me for the work I'm called to do now, taking me places other lightworkers will not go. These experiences have taught me a lot about how many fallacies we are told and actually believe about the world of the unknown. Join me as I share with you what I've learned about the realms of the paranormal, mystics of the past, and places that might make you feel uneasy. I want to lift the veil a little bit and take the Hollywood out of the supernatural and metaphysics. And if you like what you hear, follow along by subscribing and please tell your friends. In part one of my exploration of the Bamberg witch trials, I left off describing the building in which the accused witches of Bamberg and area were contained. To begin part two, I'm going to get right to business and share what the Malleus Malficerum advised as the proper method of interrogating, torturing, and sentencing the accused. This method was used all over Europe, with the Bamberg Witch Council manipulating and challenging what was considered acceptable limits of torture. According to the Malleus Malficerum, the first rule the Inquisition was ordered to follow was that the accused must confess to witchcraft on their own free will. That being said, there were methods that were acceptable to use in order to extract the truth from the alleged witch, and the accused was basically presumed guilty until proven innocent. The Inquisitor would first ask the prisoner up front if they were a witch, offering the accused freedom of execution if they confessed. Of course, most of the charged would deny this and pledge allegiance to God. In this case, 
the Inquisitor would move on to the next stage, witness accusations. A witness, or the original whistleblower, would be brought in front of the court to openly accuse the nonconformist on trial. On a side note here, I want you to keep in mind that most of these so-called witnesses often made accusations toward their family members and townspeople under duress or within their own torture session. And many more witnesses were children forced to turn against their family members. Some were as young as four years old. There would be children involved in domestic disputes between their parents or other family members and not always a victim of torture, but some were and we'll get into that in a minute here. If the accused refused to confess after being called out by their witness, then torture was the next acceptable stage used to draw out a confession. In the 21st century, we are pretty squeamish to torture compared to our medieval European ancestors. Back then, the legal system was still in the infancy stages and criminals were treated worse than the animals of the time. Certain torture methods and devices were acceptable to use in any kind of criminal case or sentencing, but it was especially pushed if there was a witch on trial. To keep things fair, there was a legal loophole that was observed. This loophole would proclaim a prisoner innocent if they survived three rounds of torture and still didn't confess to the crime they were being charged with. In Bamberg, this rule didn't make the cut. In some of the found documentation of the prisoners at Bamberg, there was indication that pauses were encouraged in many of the torture sessions just to continue the session later that day or the day after. The Witch Commission at Bamberg called these continuations of torture and did not classify them as repetitive torture sessions. That means one torture session could theoretically last for days in the Malfit's house with no indication of when one session ended and one began, the three session rule was easily manipulated and completely disregarded. The Inquisition of Bamberg would also disregard any age limits and not only for the witnesses. Bamberg was one of the only witch prisons that openly accused, tortured and executed children and some as young as eight years old. And here is what the torture staff was trained to do, according to Hammer the Witches. To begin the session, the torturer would lay out and prepare the devices of the day. The devices being chosen would set the torture method assigned for the crime that the witch was being accused of. As an example, if a prisoner was charged with blasphemy, a device known as a tongue terror would be made available. Used to ultimately silence the prisoner, this device would be forced into the mouth and the business end would be clamped down onto the tongue with a screw controlled by the torturer. Each charge offered a variety of devices to choose from. It was a truly horrendous visual for those accused to be exposed to. Sometimes just seeing the devices chosen for the day was enough to encourage a false confession. The next stage involved stripping the prisoner. If the accused was male, they would strip the clothes from his body right in the torture chamber. Since the torture staff was generally male, the inquisitors were advised to have any women prisoners stripped by another female before being transferred to the torture chamber, you know, to keep things on the level and all. And that would be the last bit of respect a woman charged with witchcraft could hope to receive. 
You would think the stripping of the accused would be for added terror and humiliation. In reality, this was done as an extra measure to protect the inquisitors and torturers from any witchcraft that might be sewn into the clothes or secured to the body of the accused. And besides, Hammer the Witches warns that when a witch pledges allegiance to the devil, they gain extra nipples or other growths on the body from which the devil and his minions were said to suckle from. And this brings us to the next stage of the torture, the examination of the body. And they were looking for those telltale marks of the devil. The judges, inquisitors, and other officials would scan the body from the soles of the feet to the top of the head, checking every nook and cranny in between. Any unusual moles, extra nipples, weird-looking nipples, or birthmarks could be suspicious. The inquisitors would also be on the watch for marks that may appear and disappear mysteriously. Some might even poke the accused with a device known as a bodkin. A bodkin is a small pen-sized device, and it was outfitted with a sharpened metal tip. Some were customized by the user, like the bodkins detailed with a retractable tip or blade. The bodkins were used to see if the accused would bleed or react in pain when poked with them. If neither happened, and the accused would still not confess, the Inquisition would be satisfied to move on to the next stage, using the torture devices. There were many to choose from, as I mentioned before, so I chose a couple of the more well-known and documented devices and methods of torture one might actually find themselves exposed to while in Bamberg specifically. I'll start with the Strapido. This shocking device was known to absolutely be used in Bamberg. One of the more famously accused witches in Bamberg's last witch hunt was named Johannes Unius. Unius was barely able to write a farewell and testament letter to his daughter Veronica that described what it was like being held prisoner in the Melfit's house. Unius actually detailed his experience with the strapido and thumbscrews. For reference, here are a couple of lines from his farewell letter, and I quote, Many hundred thousand good nights, dearly beloved daughter Veronica. Innocent I've come to prison. Innocent I have been tortured. Innocent I must die, for whoever comes into the witch prison must become a witch or be tortured until he invents something in his head. Unquote. This letter was smuggled out of the prison by one of Eunice's guard and delivered to his daughter. It is one of the only personal experiences that survived the Bamberg witch trials. Eunice was mayor of Bamberg in the year 1628. Between June and July of that year, Eunice and his wife were both indicated of taking part in a coven of witches and were even said to have led the Sabbaths the covens would attend in secret. Though Eunice and his wife were highly respected members of society, they were wealthy and vehemently denied taking part in any kind of black magic, they were imprisoned, tortured, and executed all the same. Eunice's wife's execution was not described in the sources I found, but it is known that her body was sent to the witch ovens of zeal to be burned within the first couple of weeks after entering the prison walls. I will share what I learned about the witch ovens of zeal in just a minute here. Eunice, however, lived for at least four weeks after his torture began. The Inquisition initiated his torture session with thumbscrews when Eunice would not confess. These were simple devices made of two slats of wood 
that were designed it to screw closed. The torturer would isolate the thumbs, fingers, or even toes. Sometimes another body part like the forearm was placed into a device that was similar to this. The torturer would slowly screw the wooden slats together, which would begin to apply pressure until the thumbs, fingers, or other bones were literally being crushed. The pain would become so unbearable and would often result in bloody, irreversible damage. Many people would confess to anything you asked them to after this treatment, but Unius was firm in his denial. This led to his extreme torture session on the Strapido. The Strapido had three variations of use, and each would cause visible, permanent damage to the upper body. In Unius's case, the Squasession method was used. In Unius's letter to his daughter, he described his hands being secured behind his back at the wrists by a rope that was attached to the pulley system that was the strapido. The torturer would begin hoisting Unius up off the ground, creating unimaginable pain and dislocation of the arms, shoulders, and brachial plexus. Then Unius was dropped, only to be hoisted up again. Unius explained that his torturer repeated this a total of eight times before the session came to a close. Other variations included hoisting and letting the accused hang, and the third involved adding weight to the feet to deepen the pain experienced while in the hanging position. When the strapido was used, death often came before the final sentencing of the execution by fire. Unius survived the strapido, but not much longer after confessing his allegiance to the devil due to this treatment. But this was the whole game of the judges and inquisitors. If a prisoner confessed to being a witch and all the crimes they committed while influenced by the devil, the torture ends. The inquisitor also led the confessed witch to believe their life would be spared if they now pointed the finger at those who were involved in the witchery with them. This is how Unius was accused and so many others. The inquisitors wanted names and they wanted names now. This brings us to the next stage Hammer the Witches would detail, how to accumulate more prisoners. After a confession of guilt was received, the role of the Inquisitors would now focus on extracting more names. The Inquisitor or judge would offer the now-confessed witch freedom of execution, which was never really honored anyways. The prisoner would either be imprisoned for life with just bread and water until they died, or the judge at the torture session would make themselves unavailable for the sentencing portion of the now-confessed witch's trial. This would allow another judge to take over the sentencing of the guilty and have them executed by fire anyways. The rate of confessions and accusations were very high in Bamberg. After the confessed witch would point the finger at others, they would then have to confess in detail how they used witchcraft and the crimes they committed while in league with the devil. The people confessed to unimaginable things they never truly committed after being subjugated to the strapido or other horrific torture methods. This is where the misled beliefs that witches could fly or would snatch babies for devilish rituals came into the collective consciousness. There were many ways used to humiliate, degrade, and execute the witches, and the torturers of the time had a pricing list to make sure they were being compensated appropriately for their services. 
the torturers who were hired to tear people apart would submit an invoice totaling every device and method used in each session. Even worse, this invoice was not submitted to the Prince Bishop, but to the families of the accused. The last insult to injury. Can you imagine what it was like seeing an itemized list of what was used to degrade and mutilate your loved one? If the family was unable to cover these fees, they would then be passed on to the community and reclaimed through tax collection. Sick on so many levels, if you ask me. I shared the image that I found of a pricing list for the torturers in Bamberg with my Patreon community if you were curious and wanted to see what it looked like in those times. So what was next? Sentencing and execution, of course. Like I mentioned before, most of the confessed witches were executed. In Bamberg, they were burned at the stake. Some prisoners were lucky enough to be beheaded before they went to the stake, but many others were burned alive. This act was done publicly and eventually became a burden on the wood rations of the area. This is where the witch ovens of zeal came into existence. In order to save wood and better dispose of the accumulating bodies and bones, many of the victims of the Inquisition were sent to the witch ovens of zeal to be fully cremated after beheading. It really is true when they say history is doomed to repeat itself for those who are unwilling to learn from the past. The reign of terror and impact of Bamberg's witch trials did not go unnoticed. There was concerns over the willy-nilly nature of taking sworn statements and confessions from any class of resident and allowing family feuds to play a role in the accumulation of prisoners. Eventually, word began to leave the confines of the town and the residents began to challenge their prince bishop. The news of the atrocities happening under Johann Jorg's watch would find its way to his superiors, including the Pope. The tipping point occurred in the year 1630 when the case of Dorothea Flock presented itself. Dorothea Flock was a member of a wealthy and respected merchant family of Nuremberg. She was arrested on the suspicion of witchcraft. Her spouse managed to flee Bamberg as a refugee and he made his way to Nuremberg where he issued a formal complaint of her arrest to the emperor. When the emperor reached out demanding the prince bishop defend himself against these accusations of false charges against Dorothea and commanded him to stop the trial against Dorothea until this was all sorted out, the prince bishop defied his emperor and resumed this case in late April of 1630. By May, the emperor had asked the pope to intervene. This led to the issuing of a halt in power of the Prince Bishop and a move for the Roman Catholic Church to put a halt on leadership in Bamberg pending an evaluation or an investigation of sorts. The Witch Commission caught wind of this ruling and executed Dorothea Flock on May 17, 1630, just before the Roman Catholic Councilor arrived. This act of defiance outraged the leaders of the Catholic Church community in Germany, and the Prince Bishop was held responsible. As the council entered Bamberg, and the investigation against the Prince Bishop began, this put a halt to all new witch trials. Though, they did not immediately release the prisoners already on trial. The townspeople eventually stopped supporting their Prince Bishop altogether and had already began refusing to supply wood for the executions. Under this immense pressure, the Prince Bishop put an end to making any new arrests completely. 
The downward spiral would continue when the emperor appointed a new prince bishop of Bamberg, a man named Anton Winter. Winter was known for his opposition to the witch hunts, and when he arrived to claim his post in Bamberg, Johann Georg had already fled to Austria. The first act of the witch commission under Anton Winter's rule was to release all the prisoners confined in the Malfitz house, under the condition that the prisoners were never to speak about what they had seen, heard, or experienced within those walls. By the year 1632, the Protestant-aligned Swedish army would devastate Germany under the leadership of King Gustav Adolphus of Sweden. King Adolphus was committed to creating an intervention against the witch trials of Bamberg anyways. So when his troops approached Bamberg in 1632, this act led to the dismantling of the witch commission and the eventual demise of the bishopric rule of the town of Bamberg. Though there were some smaller witch trials that were documented in the region of Bamberg up until 1680, the last big wave that claimed the most lives was over and the witch prison was torn down by the year 1636. Three hundred years of terror came to a halt in the 1600s and I was still left wondering why. How could this have happened for so long before anyone intervened? I know, I mentioned the superstitious, political, and religious aspects of why some historians figured the witch frenzies came to be. But at the end of the day, the reason the witch hunts lasted as long as they did with the approval of the Holy Roman Empire, well, it came down to money and land. What I didn't mention before was that when a person was arrested on the charges of witchcraft, the Holy Roman Empire would have the power to seize all of the accused's money, assets, and property. This is why by the end of the hunts in Bamberg, many of those arrested were of the higher class. This made it easy to acquire the funds and land required by the church to continue expanding. Whole families were exterminated in some cases. The corruption ran deep in some of the towns of Germany and other parts of Europe and Scandinavia, but not all of them. In a time when we want to blame superstitious attitudes, blind allegiance, and the infancy of organized politics or religion, it was really all about being financially supported to continue expansion of the Holy Roman Empire. As long as the money kept rolling in, it seemed like those at the top could care less how it was received. And I decided to check to see how much the Roman Catholic Church was worth today, and it's an estimated $30 billion. One last note on this subject. In my research efforts, I found a plethora of information in regards to the Salem Witch Trials of Massachusetts in the United States of America but it was a little more challenging to find extensive sources on the European witch hunts. In one of the sources I read through, it seems as though the bulk of the information related to the European witch trials and Bamberg only began being released on a larger scale in the early 2000s. I have my eye on a couple of books that focus solely on the witch craze of the Middle Ages Europe, but they are an investment for sure. I can bet they are worth their weight in gold though, and so they're on my wish list for now. 
I did list the sources that I did find helpful to create part one and two of my exploration of the Bamberg Witch Trials in my show notes for you to consider as well. I know there will be more to discover in the future as more and more information comes to the surface. Today, you can still wander the streets of Old Town Bamberg. The original buildings from the 9th century are well maintained and so is the Bamberg Cathedral that was built in the 1300s. To this day, the Bamberg Cathedral is under the administration of the Roman Catholic Church and is home to the Archbishop of Bamberg. Bamberg's Old Town was declared a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 1993 and is one of the only towns in the world to hold this status. The old town is protected due to its cultural and historical significance. This section of Bamberg has preserved the look of the past and is the largest intact old town ensemble in all of Europe. I have offered a video link that gives you an idea of what it would be like to visit and explore these streets from antiquity. Over the centuries, Bamberg has recovered and grown in population. I found a census from 2011 that counted the population just over 70,000 people. And there was lots of information to be found online in regards to travel and tourism within the town limits. Bamberg not only has aesthetically appealing architecture and cobblestone streets, but there is a thriving art community, markets, festivals, and nine local breweries to keep a traveler busy. To close this episode, I wanted to share my thoughts here for a minute. I think it is important to keep sites like Bamberg alive in the collective consciousness. It seems like the whole world right now wants to either ignore or erase the deeds of the worst kind of humans from our collective memory. Tearing down statues and buildings that represent crimes against humanity does not mean that these people or situations never existed. I believe we must maintain and care for these sites, even alter them by updating the plaques and tours to reflect the truth that has risen from the ashes of the past. Talking about what really happened and who was responsible begins the healing process and takes power away from the oppressors. Being brave enough to expose the truth is essential to the growth of humanity, even if it is uncomfortable or challenges our image of people or situations we once held in high esteem. We must not forget and we must not hide from the past, or we, as a global community, will be doomed to repeat the darkest parts of history over and over and over again. Thank you so much for popping by and spending some time with me today. I really appreciate you being here. I'm excited for the growth and change happening for season two, and I would love to hear your feedback. The Dark Side of Light work is where I'll be exploring topics of the strange and unusual that I have long researched myself. My intention is to bring light to the darker subjects others shy away from in spirituality, energy work, and the paranormal. Show topics will include mysterious places like the Bamberg Witch Prison, infamous hauntings, stories of the unusual, and psychics from recent history and antiquity. I invite you to leave a message at my Anchor FM page letting me know how you like it. You can also share your personal experience with a show topic or even share a show idea. I listen to each message and may include your idea or recording in a future episode. 
Since I'm an independent podcast host and producer, a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, a follow on Spotify, or a review where you're listening to me right now would really help others find my show. And if you like what you hear on the Dark Side of Light work, any kind of sharing is caring in my mind, and I'm just glad that you're here. Outside of my podcast platforms, you can find me on my Patreon page and social media by searching for The Dark Side of Light Work with Wynn Thornley. If you like bonus content, I invite you to become a part of my Patreon community. Your contribution helps with the growth and expansion of The Dark Side of Light Work, and I have lots planned for exclusive content for my loyal Patreon community as the year rolls out, with the first of many virtual haunted field trips already being uploaded. Any support is welcome, and I feel grateful for the support that I've already received. So thank you so much. In my next episode, I'm going to share what I learned about Lake Minnewanka, which is located in Banff National Park, Alberta, Canada. I took a road trip to Lake Minnewanka back in April 2021 with my magical friend named Leanna. We went into this spontaneous haunted field trip with little to no information about this place. We sat, created space, and both had a few interesting things come through the channeling session we had while experiencing the energy of a frozen Lake Minnewanka. There was a couple of souls that showed themselves and messages that included warnings to pay attention and that things can be washed away in a moment. After our trip back home, I decided to extend my experience and go a little deeper into the history of this known-to-be-haunted piece of Alberta's history. Thank you once again for listening until the end, and I look forward to dropping the next episode soon. So until then, take good care.